Chapter Nine of the Outdoor Chums in the Big Woods. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Outdoor Chums in the Big Woods by Captain Quincy Allen. Chapter Nine The Wonderland of Maine. I've already spoken about the professional honey hunter began frank who puts in a lot of his time summers roaming the woods in certain sections always on the lookout for bees working in the blossoms or flowers yes will broke in and we know how they find the hives in dead limbs of trees by trailing working bees they catch a bee that's loaded with honey or sugar water supplied by the bee hunter and attach a little white stuff to him this they can see for a long distance as he makes a bee line for his home that's right because I watched a chap doing it once bluff asserted he kept edging closer and closer with every bee He marked till in the end he found the hive. I saw him take a heap of good honey out of that tree And I got beautifully stung in the bargain Then there's the man who gathers the crooked wood that ship carpenters use for making boats knees Frank continued Marking with his fingers as he spoke nearly every small boat has to have just so many they're mighty hard to get even after you've run across the right juniper or hackmatic because it's necessary that they should be of a certain shape Well, that's sure a queer occupation remarked Jerry of course There are lots of trappers up here who work all winter Frank observed Just as we know our old friend Jesse Wilcox does out where we live But the furs they get here are pretty valuable though not bringing quite as high a price as others taken up in Canada and the Northwest How's that demanded bluff? Stop and think a minute he was told and you'll understand why it should be so The colder the climate the more need of a heavy coat of fur Now take the common raccoon that is found all over the eastern section of our country The animal down in the Gulf region grows a poor thin coat beside the one that has to stand a spell of winter weather up here Oh, I see now plain enough bluff exclaimed trust nature to look out for her children remarked sentimental will she always does frank told him seriously that's why certain animals in the far north change their coats with the coming of winter from gray or brown they take on a snow-white fur that's intended either to help them escape from their enemies in the midst of the snow or else to assist them in creeping up on their food supply yes broke in jerry and when we were down at new orleans and caught some salt-water fish for a change didn't they tell us that certain ground fish like the flounder is white underneath where it doesn't count But mud colored on top well, That looks as though nature wanted to protect him as he lay on the bottom of the shallow bayous and flooded places Then continued Frank there are the Indians who act as guides to parties of sportsmen in the summer fishing and in the fall hunting Their women make baskets and lots of other pretty things using colored grasses and porcupine quills and sell them to the guests at the hotels in the state How about the spruce gum hunters Frank bluff asked? I'm coming to them right now replied the other That's one of the most interesting employments in the Maine woods gathering the gum of the spruce trees Of course, you know it's used in making some kinds of chewing gum for the girls Yes, and some boys are just as bad about using the stuff bluff went on in a scornful tone it happened that he himself had recently graduated from the ranks of chewers these fellows keep on the move pretty much all the year Frank told them 
A gum hunter has to cover his field about once in so often. He must have pretty good eyes, or he couldn't discover where the sticky mass hangs on the side of tall trees. Some of them use field glasses in their work, and I don't blame them much. I should think that would help out considerably, Will commented, doubtless remembering how difficult it often was for the unaccustomed eye to tell whether a certain protuberance far up on a tree trunk was a bowl or a woodpecker flattened out at his hammering work. It's a paying business if only they can pick up enough gum, Frank explained. They get as high as a dollar and a half a pound for the stuff. As a rule, they go in couples because there is often need of help. And they work far away from civilization, so it must be lonely at times. But that isn't all, Frank, I take it, queried Bluff. Why, replied the other, I've hardly begun to tell you about the scores of things that are going on up here in these wonderful woods, pretty much the year round. Perhaps you've never bothered your heads about finding out where all the hoop poles came from. They use millions of them every year, and the supply is inexhaustible, even if it does take time and trouble to gather it. Then that's one of the main woods industries, is it? questioned Will. A big one, Frank answered promptly. You know that after certain trees like birch and ash are cut down, the roots throw up sprouts aplenty. Yes, I've seen regular little forests of them many a time, Bluff replied. Well, that's where the harvest of the hoop pole man comes in, Frank continued. He follows the path where the loggers have gone a year or two before. Of course, his work makes it necessary for him to have a horse, so as to carry his day's gathering to a central point where it can be shipped. Do they fetch the stuff out just as it's cut? asked Jerry. Not as a rule, Frank answered. At night the men sit by the fire and spend the time in talking, while they use their shavers to take the bark off the poles. Later on, these poles are split at the factories and used for barrels, kegs, and orange boxes. The men who gather them don't get rich at the job, I reckon, Bluff commented, at a hazard seeking still more information concerning this wonderful country, which he had never dreamed could produce so many strange livelihoods. Oh, they get a few cents apiece for the poles, said Frank, but as they work steadily, and there are no labor agitators to call them out on strike, I guess they make it pay. Another strange business up here is getting axe handles. Gee whiz! Doesn't it beat the Dutch about that? chuckled Bluff. Like every other fellow, I've often wondered where they got all those fine axe handles that come to our town. So here's where they come from. I'm glad to know it. A fair part of the supply comes from up around Maine, Frank told him. The woods roamer needs the best quality of ash for his business. He hunts over a large territory to find just what he wants. In the fall of the year, the trees are dropped and in a rough way each handle is shaped by a tool they call a fro. After that they keep them underground for a time. What's that? Bury the handles? remarked Will wonderingly. Just to season the wood so it will not crack, Frank explained. Of course, after all this, the finer work of finishing the axe-helves has to be done at the factory. Another man who makes his living from the woods is the fellow who gathers the hemlock bark used by nearly all tanneries. Besides, all sorts of roots that bring in good money are being dug every year throughout Maine. You mean wild ginseng roots and golden seal, don't you, Frank? Will asked. Yes, and many others in the bargain. In lots of places, boys make quite a little money finding these roots and drying them. Then let's see. Did you know that pearl hunting has become a regular business in some parts of Maine? Now, you must be joshing us, Frank. 
Bluff remonstrated, because pearls are found in oysters, and I've read there are only a few places in the wide world where these pearl oysters grow plentiful enough to pay for working the banks. You're mistaken about that, Will broke in. I know fine pearls have been picked out of mussels in Missouri and Indiana. Is that what you mean, Frank? Yes, the other explained. There's been considerable hunting in the streams up here for mussels or freshwater clams that happen to have a pearl in the shell. While every hunter isn't lucky enough to make a big find, still a man found one last summer near Moosehead Lake that sold for several hundred dollars. And then there's the shells. They say they're worth something, added Will, who apparently was posted on that subject at least. They sell those to factories where buttons and such are made, continued Frank. If you've ever noticed the shell of a mussel, you've seen that inside is mother of pearl and mighty fine. Does that finish the list, Jerry wanted to know? There are plenty of other things that bring in money to those who follow them up, Frank told him. But in every case it takes more or less hard work. Thousands of men are employed in logging during the winter. Then ice is gathered in great quantities to be shipped to Boston and even to New York when it's warm weather. Protecting the game in the closed season gives work to a good many men as wardens. I never would have dreamed a single state could have so many ways of making a living in its woods, murmured Will. Think of the hotel men, Frank continued, who live on the swarms of tourists and sportsmen, and the guides who get big pay for their work in season. There are the canoe-makers in Old Town and other places. They seldom try to build the older style of birch-bark boats nowadays, even the Penobscot Indians preferring the smooth-sided canvas canoe, painted green, so the fish can hardly notice it above them in the water. There must be thousands of these boats built every year, and they find a ready market from Florida to the far west and all over the country. Well, you have certainly interested us by telling us about these things, declared Bluff. Nobody but a fellow who had lived in Maine pretty much all his life would be apt to know so much about how people made their living up in these big woods. I'll have a heap more respect for the Maine pine woods after this, admitted Jerry. Up to now I kind of looked down on them, because there didn't seem to be a great many whopping big trees, such as we see out our way in the forests. But shucks, the more you travel, the bigger your knowledge box grows. That's right, added Bluff frankly. There are plenty of other things I could tell you, continued Frank, but they wouldn't seem quite as interesting after what you've heard, and I've talked myself pretty hoarse by now, so I'd better close shop and quit. I hope my flashlight trap works all right, mused Will. The fire felt so delightful that no one seemed in any hurry to crawl into his bunk. This was the life these boys enjoyed, more than anything they could imagine. Will was perhaps the only one of the quartet who cared little for hunting, but it pleased him to be in the company of his chums, and besides his new hobby was causing him to look forward to a season of profitable employment. He was fully determined not to let any opportunity pass whereby he might secure some remarkable pictures of outdoor life, to enter into that competition which the railroad companies had inaugurated. While they sat there looking into the fire, each one engaged with his own thoughts, Frank was noticed to suddenly raise his head and listen. What was that sound, Frank? demanded Bluff. Ever since we spent that time out in the Rockies on that ranch, I've believed I'd be able to know the howl of a wolf if ever I heard one again. And seems to me that was what came down on the wind just then. End of chapter 9